Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fine. Glad you could stop by to listen to some sports, and I'll navigate you through this landscape here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 160 episodes, that's right, 160, I welcome you guys back. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Whether it's Apple, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. Just ask Alexa. Play the J Reels podcast and sure enough you'll hear my voice coming through your speakers, your earbuds, wherever it may be. It is a Monday, October the 19th in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. Alabama's dominant second half stifles Georgia yet again. Doesn't matter whether it's a national championship, a conference championship, the same old song and dance for the Georgia Bulldogs as they were not able to prevail against the Crimson Tide. That was the highlight game over the weekend. And not only that, this coming weekend, the Big Ten gets to usher into the college football landscape. We'll talk about all that later on, as well as the Week 6 winners and losers in the NFL. My Steelers dominated the Cleveland Browns, but they suffered one enormous loss, especially on the defensive side of the ball. We'll get into all that, as well as the NBA, a new coach hired in L.A., No, not for the Lakers, but for the LA Clippers as Tyron Lue signs a five-year deal. We'll talk about the ramifications of what that may mean for Paul George, also Kawhi Leonard. And in the NHL, we have Joe Thornton, a man who's been in the league for now 23 years, not going back to San Jose. He's actually going to play for another team next year. I'll talk about everything that's happening in the NHL. Also, my hero in zero of the week. But the sprint of October... And pretty much the sprint of the baseball season, which started on July 23rd, has now come to the eve of the Fall Classic. We've seen what has taken place here over the last three weeks, whether it's the wild card round. And for one second, I know, my apologies people, I did not get into my thoughts about the wild card round, how much I loved it. I hope that Major League Baseball moving forward implements the two out of three format to start off the playoffs instead of the one game wild card winner takes all to go on to the division series. I really feel that will help baseball keep it to wherever or whomever has the home field for that series out of those three games. Pretty much what you saw here a few weeks ago. I hope that they keep that. I think it's much better than the one game playoff. So I digress. But between that, the division series and the championship series, you have the two teams that were actually the best in each of their leagues in the LA Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays, but they could not be more far apart than they already are when you look at the glitz and glam, the high payroll, the megastars that the Dodgers employ to the next man up, 28-man roster where every guy is pretty much held accountable for and the very low payroll Tampa Bay Rays. 
this is going to be a World Series that a lot of people will look at and say, this is why baseball works in its current climate. Because when you have a team like the Rays, which they have not come out of nowhere. You know, it's not as if this team is some Cinderella story that has been riding this magic carpet ride through October. And voila, here we are in the World Series where people certainly weren't expecting this. When you're 40 and 20, and despite the low payroll, but when you have an organization that looks at power bullpen arms, an offense that is steady, not spectacular, and pretty much, like I said, everybody being held accountable for, this is the epitome of what a team is. It's not relying on one guy. It's not relying on one pitcher or two or three stars or the back end of the bullpen or a starting ace. That's not the Tampa Bay Rays formula. Whereas with the Los Angeles Dodgers, as I mentioned, it is a polar opposite. And their road to get to this World Series, which will kick off tomorrow night in Arlington, was the roller coaster ride for both of these teams. Certainly had a lot of twists and turns that were as unexpected as they could possibly be. And we'll start off with Tampa, because nobody in their right mind thought that once they were up 3 0 in the series, a lot of people thought sweep. And rightfully so, it seemed as if the Astros were running out of gas and were unable to solve the Tampa Bay bullpen, were not able to get big hits in big spots. And then all of a sudden, it just turned like that. Zach Greinke gave you a great effort there in game four to where he even came out and said that Dusty was the one guy who believed in him and he was grateful and thankful for that, unlike managers in the past. Hint, hint, A.J. Hinch. Then in Game 5, you had the heroics from Carlos Correa who hit the walk-off homer in the ninth inning. And you thought to yourself, maybe, just maybe, if the Astros could push this to a seventh game, you would have drama of the utmost. Because as we know, there hasn't been any other team but the 2004 Boston Red Sox to come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a playoff series, or in this particular case, the League Championship Series, as they did 16 years prior. And when you look at what took place in game six and it made you think that if the Rays were to take all the pressure off of them that they needed to win that game and the Astros best pitcher was on the mound and a one Framber Valdez and all he did was pitch six innings gave you a great effort one run nine strikeouts and then during that time frame between the fifth and seventh innings the Astros just piled it on scoring seven runs during that stretch to win seven four to push them to a Game 7. And there were a lot of people out there that thought that not only were the Rays on the ropes, but they were going to be done. They were going to be had. And something told me going into Saturday night that the Astros have come all the way back from an 0-3 deficit. And that would have been the story of the year, considering there hasn't been a lot of sports and we get that with coronavirus and being idle for four and a half months. There really wasn't much to talk about, but... With everything that the Astros endured in the offseason, rightfully so, from the sign-stealing, cheating scandal, to a 29-31 and 31 regular season record, sleepwalking through a two-month regular season, only to beat the Twins, no surprise there, since the Twins can't win in the postseason, 18 straight losses, I might add, sorry my guy had style, to beating the Oakland A's in the division series, and now here they were, just one win away. From going back to the World Series, third time in four years, to pretty much puff their chest out at that point, to think that they were going to have this miraculous comeback and make it to a World Series 
as a team that was under 500, which would have been historic. Because as we all know, there has not been a team in the history of baseball. Now granted, it would have been with an asterisk, considering it was only 60 games. But you set up a Game 7 to where the Tampa Bay Rays knew that they had to get on the board first. And even though we saw that in Game 6, but they needed to make a statement. They needed to come out and score some runs early, get their bearings, get themselves in a rhythm to where they know that they could play their game and not have to play catch-up and not have to fall behind, especially in the later innings against that good bullpen that they have. But they were able to get the runs early, provided by the LCS MVP and a one Randy Arozarena, who has just been mashing throughout this whole postseason. And they staked him to a 4 nothing lead. Got a little dicey there in that eighth inning where they had the bases loaded. And Carlos Correa, of all people coming up, and I knew he was going to come through there. Something told me at that point that he was either going to get a base knock or even hit one over the wall, which would have been as dramatic as any baseball event that we would have seen, considering them being in an 0-3 deficit to come back in an eighth inning of that game, down 4 nothing with a chance to tie the game. Sure enough, Correa gets a hit to the opposite field, 4-2, to two, which, brings, which brings Alex Bregman to the plate. And Bregman, who has had an awful postseason, was batting below his weight. What did he do in that spot? Couldn't put the bat on the ball. Strikes out on the pitch high and outside. And the Astros weren't to be heard from from that point on. So it was a great ride. It was an unexpected ride for the Astros. But it's not about them. It's about the Rays. People could talk about how they almost choked. Or how they almost would have been part of a trivia question. Well, we're going to have to answer that. They made it through. It didn't matter. It may have been by the skin of their teeth. But the Rays showed some gumption. They showed some toughness. They showed some grit. Showed some fortitude and were able to make it to the World Series for the first time since 2008. Second time that they'll make it to the Fall Classic and second pennant in the history of that franchise. And speaking of toughness, grit, gumption, heart, etc. Was one thing that we have not seen from the Los Angeles Dodgers over the years as we've seen time and time again. During this stretch where they've won now 8 NL West crowns. All of the postseason foibles that they've had, and we could go through the litany of them, but I'll spare you that. Be that as it may, they came into the series against a brave team that had not lost into the postseason. In fact, both teams came in with perfect records, 5-0, and as they faced off against one another. And from the early going, it looked like the Braves were going to be in cruise control. Similar to what we saw in the ALCS as the Braves jumped on the Dodgers in the first two games of the series. That first game was a tough one for the Dodgers to digest because you had that uprising in the ninth inning, tied 1-1 where Austin Riley takes Blake Trinan deep. Then later on in the inning, Ozzie Albies does the same. And the Braves go ahead and steal a game one. And then obviously follow that up with a win in game two where it kind of made you thought, Let's see what the Dodgers are going to be made of here as they've dug themselves in an 0-2 hole. But on the way to that 0-2 hole, the Bats finally woke up at the end of Game 2. They scored all those runs, had this valiant effort to try to get themselves even in the series. They were down 8-3. They scored the four runs in the ninth, came up one short. And it made you think, as you've heard in sports over and over, even in a loss like that, you wonder if the Bats had awoken. As the Dodgers finally woken up, 
even down 0-2, would that translate to a performance in Game 3 where they would get themselves back in the series? Well, it certainly did, as the Atlanta Braves even topped their own selves when you look at what they did last year in the postseason, giving up 10 runs in the first inning to the St. Louis Cardinals in that pivotal Game 5 in the division series. Well, they topped that off with giving up 11 runs in the first inning to an L.A. Dodger team that needed it in the worst way. They could have a rocking chair type of game, just relax, kick back as they won 15-3, and then it was all going to be on the shoulders of a one Clinton Kershaw for Game 4 to get them even. And as we've seen time after time after time, this generation's best pitcher has always came up short once again to the tune of where their team was now on the brink of being ousted in the postseason, possibly in five easy games. And Kershaw, we've seen it time and time again with him. And it makes you wonder, when the spotlight is on him at the brightest, where he needs to either pull his team out of the fire or get themselves ahead in the series, when you look at the back of his playoff baseball card, it's few and far between. All you got to do is look back to last year, the game against the Nationals in the Game 5 where he was taken deep there in the 8th inning, up 3-1 to tie the game, and then we know about the extra innings with Howie Kendrick and the Grand Slam. And yes, you could look at the first round against Milwaukee, you could look against San Diego, those two dominant performances he had, but then when his team really needed it, what did he do? A very lackluster performance from the future Hall of Famer. And now when you look at a Game 5, and you look to see what the Dodgers had in front of them, another playoff disappointment, another fizzled postseason, and they were able to resuscitate themselves thanks to Will Smith. And yes, there were plenty of Will Smiths to talk about here on both sides between the Dodgers and the Braves, and we're not talking about the Hollywood version of Will Smith, a la Fresh Prince. His three-run homer was pivotal in Game 5 to push that to a Game 6. The Dodgers had a three-run first in Game 6, led by the home runs of Corey Seager and Justin Turner, and it was just enough as they were able to get a great pitching performance by Walker Buehler. Even Kenley Jansen came in and pitched a clean six-pitch inning, which set up Game 7 last night. And before you could blink an eye, three base runners in, two walks to start the game, and a Marcelo Zuna base hit. It was one nothing, and it made you think, Are the Braves going to pour it on early and often to the point where the Dodgers are going to fall so far behind that they can't answer back and then meekly head into the offseason answering more questions, scratching their heads and wondering if this team will ever get over the hump to get themselves an opportunity for a brass ring. But as the game chipped away and you got to that third inning, two outs, they were able to muster a rally Justin Turner walks, Muncy hits the double, and then that guy again, Will Smith came up with another big two-out hit, tied the game, and then the stage was set later on where you had Kiki Hernandez in a long eight-pitch at bat, tie the game with a home run in the sixth inning, and then the following inning, same sequence, eight pitches, long at bat, Cody Bellinger, who has been awful in this postseason. And when you combine his previous off-seasons, he's a guy that is almost a regular season bully. But when it comes to the playoffs, 
He just wilts like a flower. Well, he came up huge last night to the tune of the go-ahead home run, 4-3, to three, and then Julio Urias, a guy who had a lot of promise coming into Major League Baseball as a 19-year-old left-hander. All he did was shut down the Brave offense. He combined with a few other relievers to where 18 of the final 19 batters that Dodger pitchers faced, they were able to retire. The only person that was able to get on was a walk in the sixth inning. And the Dodgers had to scratch, claw, bleed, sweat to get to an NLCS victory where last night, I'm sure they had to exhale as big as the City of Angels. But they still have that one more mountain to climb in order for them to win that first World Series in 32 years. Kudos to them. And Corey Seager was your MVP of the NLCS. The Dodgers never seem to come easy in October and did it the hard way. But at least for this round, you got to look at them and say they finally showed the championship heart that they've been lacking for the last seven postseasons. And you wonder if this is going to be enough for them to carry themselves to a championship flag. Obviously, it remains to be seen. When we look at the teams that lost here, I touched on Houston a little bit before, but real quick with them, they were playing with house money. It would have been a comeback of the ages and would have been a tremendous story with everything that they've endured this offseason and understandably and rightfully so. But it wasn't about them, it was about the Rays. And just like it was more about the Dodgers here than the Braves, but if you're an Atlanta Brave fan, this one is going to stick to your ribs for a long time. You had this team pretty much right where you wanted them. You beat the mighty Clayton Kershaw. You went into a game five knowing that you had a chance to close them out there and two other opportunities to do so and were not able to seal the deal. Ronald Acuna Jr. did not have a good postseason. Guys like Freddie Freeman, of course, Marcelo Zuna, who cooled off toward the end even though he had to hit yesterday to get their first run on the board. But there were guys that weren't able to come up in big spots. And now they look into the soft season wondering, what if? What if we were able to get that big out? Not only that, the Dodgers made key defensive plays. Speaking of Freeman, he got robbed of a home run, which looked like it probably would have hit the top of the wall, but you never know. It wasn't definitive, but at the same time, chances are it probably could have cleared the wall. And they made a lot of defensive plays, especially when you look at Mookie Betts doubling guys off of first base. Even the... Big spot of the game, which kind of goes unnoticed now because of the home runs by Hernandez and Bellinger, but with the Braves up 2-0 and second and third and nobody out, them running into that double play where Marquecas hits the ground ball to Turner, he throws home, they get the out there, and then Austin Riley, I don't know what he was thinking, just terrible base running on his part. So they ran themselves out of a big rally there, same deal that they did in also game five. So the Braves have to look in the mirror to take that long cold hard stare to know that yes they were that close but if it wasn't for a couple of base running blunders defensive plays and some timely hitting they know that they could have been representing the National League in the World Series this year but that's a team that is certainly on the rise they've made it to the postseason in the last three years young core with a little bit of veterans mixed in there young pitching coming up through the pike the Braves will be heard from. 
It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to be able to get to a point where they get back to a World Series and finally win one for the first time in 25 years. And one other thing before I get to the storylines and my World Series prediction, I don't know what the suits at Fox were doing or thinking to have Joe Buck, who did the first six games of the NLCS, and then you have a Game 7, which was totally unexpected considering the history of the Dodgers in the postseason, and just coming off the heels of a Game 7 in the American League, which was totally unexpected. Now you have your play-by-play guy and Hall of Famer Joe Buck have to fly to Tampa to do, I'm not going to say it was a meaningless game, again, Tampa, Green Bay, we know it was a hot matchup, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, understandable. But for Fox not to get the backup, whomever that may be, I don't know, Kevin Burkhardt or whomever it may be, to fill in for Joe Buck just so he could do that game seven, that's a disgrace. I couldn't believe when I heard on Friday that Buck was going to do that game if there was a game seven. Now, mind you, if the Braves would have won in five or in six, you wouldn't have to worry about that because Buck would have done the game. But knowing that there was a game seven possibly on the horizon and that Joe Buck wasn't going to be there to call it, what does that say to your baseball fan? What does that say to the guy who watched the first six games of that series and then, oh, what the hell is Buck for game seven? Oh, he's in Tampa for a week six game against the Packers? I just thought that was a terrible job by Fox. They, they couldn't put Buck in that game seven, which would have added a lot more drama. We know Buck's voice. I think he's better with baseball than football, and I like Buck. But I don't know what Fox was thinking there. So they dropped the ball on that. Just a terrible job. They had Joe Davis, who was a Dodger announcer at that, do the play-by-play with John Smoltz last night. And it was funny because even watching a little bit of that Green Bay-Tampa game, I love how Troy Aikman says, my apologies to... John Smoltz says, I took away Joe Buck from you for a huge Game 7 tonight. So it was fun how he had a little banter there on the air with Buck and sent out his apologies to John Smoltz. But Aikman was right. So I, I just thought, and again, I understand people, ah, you're nitpicking J-Reels, ah, it's no big deal. Ah, well, if you're a baseball fan and you've listened to Joe Buck the first six games and here, he is, here we are for a Game 7, come on, it's only right for him to cover that game, no? Am I wrong? Now, as far as the storylines, as I said from the top, you have two totally different teams, not only just with the payrolls, but the personnel, which is the two biggest things when you look at it, despite the fact that both teams, as I said from the top again, had the best records in each league, and the Dodgers had the best record in the whole sport. The one other storyline you have is Andrew Friedman, who is the head of baseball operations for the Dodgers. If you recall... He was part of the brain trust in Tampa before Tampa became what they are right now over the last couple of years, not only just a playoff team, but now a World Series team. So he has his ties. I understand it's front office. He's not going to get a ton of the pub that a player would if it was a former Dodger that's on the Rays and vice versa. But something to look forward to because Freeman has his fingerprints all over that franchise prior to him going to LA a few years back. So that's something that you could hang your hat on as far as the storyline is concerned. But when we look at this series, if you haven't followed this postseason at all, and you kind of wonder as you're jumping in now, okay, now it's the World Series. What can I look forward to? What can I expect? I could break it down to you as simple as this. The Rays, if you're wondering who their best player is, who their top ace is, who their closer is, there isn't a sexy name that's going to come out and grab you. We know that their lineup is 
not really balanced. As I said, it's very steady. It's not spectacular. I get that the heroics of Randy Rosarena is probably going to become a household name, especially if he could get himself on this stage and perform the way he has in the three previous rounds. Does that mean he's going to be a World Series MVP? Obviously, we're not going to know that, and chances are he probably won't, but here he is now to be front and center in front of the world to show what he could do on this stage and knowing that he has ice water in his veins considering what he's done against the Yankees, against the Toronto Blue Jays, and just recently now against the Houston Astros, the whole world's going to see who Randy Rosarena is. But even then, it's still not Mookie Betts. It's not a Clay Bellinger. It's not a Corey Seager. That just goes to show you the type of team the Rays have. It's more or less like the Kansas City Royals, if you want me to put a comparison to a team of recent World Series vintage. Because the Royals had good players, solid players. We know they are the Alex Gordons, the Eric Hosmers, the Lorenzo Canes, the Mike Moustakases, but not guys that were MVP candidates, not guys that were perennial all-stars, guys who did the job and passed the baton to the next guy. And the same for their starting pitching. Blake Snell, who is the ace of the staff, to me, he's Scott Casimir 2.0. He's a guy that will throw a million pitches in five innings and then he's gone. Although it was unfair in game six, he only threw 82 pitches there in his start and then Kevin Cash, for whatever the reason, decided to pull him to where Snell was despondent. You couldn't believe it. And you also have Charlie Morton who has also pitched in a World Series before and won with the Houston Astros a few years back and kudos to him and what he did in game seven to neutralize the Astros' former teammates. And in the bullpen, you have a million different guys back there that could close the game. So whether your name is Peter Fairbanks, whether your name is Nick Anderson, whether your name is Diego Castillo, you go down the list, but that's the Tampa Bay Ray team in a gigantic nutshell. It's not one guy, it's not two guys, not five guys, not ten guys, it's everybody. So that's what you're dealing with there. To the baseball fan or the casual sports fan who's listening this for the very first time and wondering, okay, what can I expect from this Ray's team? Well, that's what it is. They're not going to outslug you. They're not going to go deep in games as far as their starting rotation is concerned. Maybe Morton can, and maybe Tyler Glasnow can, but we know that between Kevin Cash and even Dave Roberts, it's all about the analytics to them. They become so reliable and so on top of it when it comes to, oh, we have to make a pitching change here, or oh, we have to make sure we get this type of matchup. Unfortunately, that's baseball in 2020, so you're not going to have guys that are going to gut out innings or gut through a couple of batters, at the sign of trouble or even the first sign, they're ready to pull the hook and go right to the bullpens because that's what the analytics tells them. So if there's one thing that's similar between both of these managers is that they'll be ready to look at the spreadsheets, look at the books, look at the numbers to say, we're going to go with this as opposed to saying, we know what this pitcher, what this batter is capable of doing. We're going to go with our gut and ride this out. As opposed to just saying, hey, well, what are the numbers against this guy? Third time around the lineup? Uh Uh-uh. Time to pull him. Let's get our bullpen involved. And then with the Dodgers, as I said before, we know who the guys are. Whether it's the Mookie Betts's, the Cody Bellinger's, the Justin Turner's, the Corey Seager's, the Clayton Kershaw's, despite his ineptitude in the postseason, the Walker Bueller's. Even the Kenley Jansons, because people know who Kenley Jansen is. The Dodgers are star-studded throughout their roster. 
and with the Dodgers and everything they've had to endure under this regime here over the last seven years with this manager, with this ball club, they're now at the point where they're back to the World Series. Third time in four years for them. They have to go in here and seal the deal. There's no ifs, ands, buts, babies about it. What it boils down to in this World Series, to me, are two things. One, which bullpen is going to outperform the other? And two, who's going to get that timely hit? That's it. I understand October, that's what it's all about. Timely hitting and pitching. But unless you're going to get length from these starters, in particular, Walker Bueller and Clayton Kershaw, because, as I said earlier, with Blake Snell... You're only going to get five innings. Morton, he may give you six. Same for Glass now. But to me, with the way these managers are, they're going to be so bullpen reliant that I think it's going to cancel each other out. Although I do think the potential of the top two Dodger starters will and can go longer than Tampa's top two or even three starters if you want to throw in Snell, Glass now, and Morton. And then who's going to get the timely hit? Because when this is going to be a pitching loaded World Series and the Dodgers do have the better lineup, we know Cody Bellinger in particular has been awful in a big spot. We know there are certain guys that haven't been able to get the key hit or that timely hit in big spots. Look at Will Smith. That's a guy that when you look at the Dodger lineup, I'm not going to say he's the last guy you expect to get a big hit, but you're going to look at their key guys that I've mentioned throughout the course of this first half hour that you expect them to go up there and get the big hit or the big home run not a guy like Will Smith or Chris Taylor or even Kiki Hernandez for that matter and Hernandez has come up big in previous postseasons I believe he hit three home runs in a playoff game against the Cubs a few years back and same with the Dodger bullpen because we know a guy like Randy Orozarena who's going to get a lot of pub here in this World Series especially to the person who does not know who's the big star or the one force that's on this Tampa Bay roster. But when you look at their lineup, Austin Meadows, pretty much since the division series game against the Yankees, when he hit the home run off of Garrett Cole, he's absolutely done zero. And you're not going to rely on the Joey Wendells of the world. You're not going to hang your hat on Willie Adamez or Brandon Lau because they couldn't hit a lick here in this league championship series. So even though it's a next man up mentality, but one of these guys is going to have to come through with a big hit and a big time because the Dodgers, despite them having their woes in the postseason, they do have a few guys that can wreck a game with one swing of the bat. I think this is going to be a tooth and nail series. I wouldn't be surprised if the Dodgers have a couple games where it gets out of hand. You know, they win a 8-2 or 7-1 type game. I could see that. But think about this, people. Over the last month, we've had the Tampa Bay Lightning win in hockey. The Los Angeles Lakers win in basketball. And your matchup here is Tampa and LA. So it's almost as if, okay, which city is going to get the next champion and kind of have a little bit of bragging rights when it comes to a hotbed of sorts here in the United States? I can't root for the Dodgers. I've never liked the Dodgers. And I understand it's been 32 years. 
In fact, the last time they won in 1988, it was at the expense of my beloved New York Mets, which pretty much set their franchise back a decade after that loss. I'm picking the Rays in seven. I just think that better arms in the bullpen. I don't love their lineup, but they do have that next man up mentality. And I understand the Dodgers have gotten over the hump a little bit as far as showing some character, showing some toughness, showing a backbone, which we haven't seen from this Dodger team. And generally when they have those type of moments, when any team has a moment like that, that usually translates to a winning season or a championship season. Because it takes a series or a game or a couple of games to win like that in order for them to get to that mountaintop. And the Dodgers are going to be, I would think, if not heavily favored, they're going to be prominently favored. But I do like the Rays' resourcefulness. And even with them in their journey, up 3-0, having the Astros come back to tie the series, and for them to show their gumption in a Game 7, exhibited a lot. And that's why I find this World Series fascinating, because it is a contrast of two different styles, although the philosophy is the same. But I'm going to pick the Rays in 7, because why not? Why not have an organization finally win its first World Series? And hey, let the Dodgers suffer for another year. Now watch, this time next week I'll come back and the Dodgers win in five and I'll look like a horse's ass. I don't know what to tell you. One of the baseball note, with the White Sox getting ousted in the wildcard round and manager Rick Renteria parting ways, they've asked for permission, I believe with the Angels if I'm not mistaken, to interview Tony La Russa. Now, La Russa, I believe, is 76 years old. We all know he retired after the 2011 season when the Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers in that World Series, which to think nine years ago, how time flies. But it would almost be a full circle job for Tony La Russa because if you remember, back in 1983, his White Sox made it to the American League Championship Series. Back then, there wasn't a divisional series. So after his team won the AL West that year, they played the Baltimore Orioles. And then the Orioles beat the White Sox and went on to win a World Series where they beat the Philadelphia Phillies. But it'll be interesting to see if LaRusso is going to take that job because that is an organization, as I've said time and time again, has a lot of young players, has a good young core, some pitching coming up in the ranks, and they could certainly make some hay over the next four or five years because these windows aren't 10 years anymore. You got to look at this in four to five year increments. So will LaRusa be seduced by that young talent, maybe having a hunger to come back for one last hurrah and coming back to a place where his managerial career began? Remains to be seen, but when that popped up this week on the sports timeline, I was really surprised to see that because LaRusa has pretty much been out of the baseball public eye since he left St. Louis. And although he's still active in baseball and he's still involved, but you got to wonder whether or not he's ready for another 162 game grind. And with the CBA at the end of next year, well, who knows what that means for the future of baseball going into 2022. Does he want to come here for a couple of years or just a one year? Who knows? But that's one report that's been out there. We'll see if La Russa actually takes that gig. All right, now onward and upward to the NFL. Do you know that there have been more touchdowns scored in the first five weeks of this season than any other in the history of this league? 
453. And you had a ton more yesterday, so I'm sure when you tack those numbers on to the first five weeks, it's probably the most in the history of the league as well because what we've seen, whether you want to attribute it to no training camps, no preseason games, just pretty much flag football when you look at the scores and how a lot of these numbers have been in the 30s and a lot of these games have been either blowouts or shootouts. Who knows what the deal is on that front? But we can't say that football has been like a video game similar to baseball with the home runs and it's tantamount to that. But with the NFL here, as we get into the winners and losers of the week, as for the winners, after the complete no-show last week versus Miami, San Francisco is my number one winner this week. And that was a game that they absolutely had to have. We know Jimmy Garoppolo was awful in that first half against the Dolphins where he was 7 for 17 with two interceptions. He had that high ankle sprain that he suffered against the Jets in week two. And a lot of people thought that even though he came back last week and performed terribly, a lot of it had to do with that right ankle that he was laboring and just trying to fight his way through. Well, yesterday it was no problem as they beat the Rams 24-16. Like I said, it was a game they had to have. They were already 0-1 in the division as they lost to Arizona in week one. They were 2-3 and as their record going into that game last night, there was no way they could fall to 2-4 and four and 0-2 in the division where you have Seattle at 5-0 and 0, and if the Rams would have won, they would have been 5-1. and 1. So they would have pretty much kissed the division goodbye. And although it's still an uphill battle for them, but they made it a lot easier for them and certainly will put themselves in the playoff mix in the NFC down the road if they continue that upward trend. So that was a huge win for the Niners there yesterday in beating the Rams. Number two... It feels like every week I've given them the winner label. And even though they may not be the top or second, but the Tennessee Titans, and this is twofold because if you remember last week, they didn't play the week against the Steelers. They had to extend this game to last Tuesday. So they had 16 days off between games. They destroyed Buffalo on Tuesday. It was at 43-17, just eviscerated them. And then yesterday... Had a big lead against the Texans. The Texans came all the way back. They took a lead late and super questionable. I understand the postgame Romeo Cornell, who is now the interim coach since Bill O'Brien has exited stage left. But at 36-29, for Cornell to go for two there was inexplicable. And his reasoning in the postgame was, I wanted to put the game out of reach. And I understand you're one and four. You're not going anywhere fast. You want to put the game to where the point is is that even if you missed a two-point conversion the game could still be tied as we saw there in the latter stages of that game where Tannehill came down the field put the ball in the end zone and they were able to tie the game and then win late to 42-36 in overtime in fact as they marched down the field and won the game on their opening drive so Tennessee 5-0 and flying high two wins there in six days Puts them at winner number two this week. And then a bounce back week for Tampa. I'll give that to them. They were down 10-0 in this game. They got a pick six. And then another interception from Aaron Rodgers which led to a touchdown. They took the lead 14-10 and they never looked back. 28 points in that second quarter. 38 unanswered for the game. They won 38-10 going away. So a little bit of faith restored down in Tampa after the future performance, especially down the stretch with Tom Brady in Chicago with the four fingers up thinking that it was fourth down when actually 
it was a loss on downs and just a brutal game against the Bears. So Tampa gets the ship righted in the NFC South and they are my third winner this week. My losers, and you can't say this often about this organization, but the New England Patriots, that was a big, fat, giant dud at Gillette Stadium yesterday. They let a Denver Bronco team come in there where Brandon McManus kicked six field goals. They went 18-12. I understand Cam Newton coming back from the coronavirus was ineffective, had two interceptions, did not play well. The team, they tried to, a valiant comeback there toward the end. Interestingly enough, at 18-3, they get a touchdown and why Bill Belichick went for two there was beyond me. Belichick is not a guy, he does like to take his chances, but when it comes to the two-point conversions, he usually tries to save that for when he absolutely had to do so. And kick the extra point, maybe he didn't have faith in his extra point kicker, I don't know, but you figure, get the extra point, you're still down by one score. But they went for two, they got stopped, so you were down by two possessions there anyway. Didn't matter, they did kick a field goal, but they were, they didn't end up falling short. So that was inexplicable in my regard. I couldn't believe why Belichick even decided to go for two there. But now the Patriots, for the first time since 2002, this late in the season, it's only five weeks in, they are under 500. Think about that. 18 years, you got to go back. So the Patriots are my number one loser of the week. Number two, and if this team is expected to do big things this year, they got to beat good teams, if not big teams on the road. We didn't see it week one against Baltimore, and we certainly didn't see it there yesterday at Heinz Field. The Cleveland Browns, put up a stinker. And I don't want to hear Baker Mayfield and his bruised ribs or he was playing hurt. If he's playing hurt and he's in the game, you got to produce or at least try to produce. And I'm not trying to say he didn't try, but on the second possession, down 3 nothing, throws a pick six to Minka Fitzpatrick. He was all over the map, did not play well. I understand he faced a big pass rush there with the Steelers. Bud Dupree was in the backfield, seemed like all afternoon. But that was just a pathetic performance. And I don't want to hear anything more about Baker Mayfield. I'm sorry. He's a guy that's in all these commercials, Hulu, Progressive. And he is beyond overrated, the most overrated player in the league. That there isn't even a number two. He's one, two, and three when it comes to being overrated in the NFL. And I don't want to pile on the guy or knock on him. But for a guy who's a number one overall pick. And he could beat the Bengals. He could beat the Indianapolis Colts. He could beat all these teams. But for whatever the reason, this team cannot beat a big team in a big spot where they're home on the road. Because let's think about it. You lose in week one last year to a Titan team where nobody knew what the Titans were. They got blown out by 30 in their own building. They go to Foxborough last year. They couldn't win in New England. They were down 17-0 in the blink of an eye. They lose week one, like I said, to Baltimore this year where they didn't even get off the bus. And then yesterday, they might as well just stayed in Cleveland. So I don't want to hear anything more about the Browns, about them being on the come up or this is a team you got to look out for. Let me see him perform in a big spot and let me see them win a big game, especially on the road, but even at home. Yeah, you can beat the Colts. You can beat all these pretenders, but ah, I've had enough with the Browns. And hopefully you won't have to hear from them for quite some time. And before I even get to some of these games, I know a couple of things happened along the course of the week last week. In particular with Le'Veon Bell. Now, I was just flabbergasted that he signed with the Chiefs. I know that his three teams that he chose from were Miami, Kansas City, 
And off the top of my head, I want to say the other team was Chicago, the Bears. But he chooses the Chiefs. Now, he's not going to play in the game tonight against the Bills. Actually, later this afternoon, 5 p.m. Because he has to go through the whole COVID protocol. You would think you'll see him next week perform in his first game in a Chief uniform. But I just, I couldn't believe it. I said to myself, of all teams he could go to, the team is already loaded offensively as it is to begin with. And now, he's going to slowly but surely ease into their fabric and their culture. But talk about the rich getting richer. We'll see how Le'Veon performs on that stage. We know that that was an ugly divorce between Bell, Adam Gaze, and the Jets. And now you're looking at the Jets here to where they traded a defensive lineman, Steve McClendon, to Tampa. And I don't know when the trade deadline is. You would think it's probably going to be sometime later this month, probably right before Halloween, or if not, well, Halloween's on a Sunday, so you would think maybe November 1st. But it's coming. That there are rumors that maybe even Quinn Williams, their number three pick overall from last year, could be on the trading block. This is Joe Douglas cleaning house, getting rid of anything that Mike McCagnan had done. But in the process, they need to get Adam Gaze out, as we've talked about time and time again. So let's see what the Jets do, as they're certainly in tank for Trevor Mode. We know Joe Flacco has been the quarterback there with Sam Donald nursing that shoulder injury. Who knows what Sam's going to do over the course of the rest of the season. They're going to have to play him. They can't play Joe Flacco for the rest of this year. Because if that's going to be the case, the owners, Christopher and Woody Johnson, they're going to look at that as, well, our quarterback was hurt, so with Joe Flacco there, we're going to keep Adam Gase. These people, they they do not have a clue. I mean, geez, thank God I'm not a Jet fan. And for my Jet fans that are out there, my condolences. So we'll keep an eye on what the Jets are going to do here between now and the trade deadline. Also, you had the Pro Bowl canceled, which is no big whoop, but you wonder, with them being canceled the week before the Super Bowl, does that mean the National Football League is looking at that week to possibly move up the playoffs to have all these games that have been jeopardized by COVID? And right now, it's been stabilized. Although you've had players and rumors, you know, Falcons had some positive tests later, late last week. You also had some Patriot players, including Sony Michelle who had to sit out because of the COVID-19 protocol. And you wonder if there are any other teams and players that are being affected that hopefully doesn't spread throughout the course of their team, organization, etc. Right now, it has been stabilized, but with the Pro Bowl being canceled, you wonder if they're going to use that to maybe push up the postseason if they need to use that week later on in the season, maybe before week 17, which would be January 3rd. Maybe they move that up to the 10th and then start the postseason the following week. And then just go straight through without a bye week between the championship games and the Super Bowl. Something just to keep in mind for down the road. And when we look at these games from yesterday, you had a lot of questionable decisions by these coaches. And week in and week out, it just makes you scratch your head. And we talked about what took place in Tennessee with Romeo Cornell and going for two when they were already up by seven, which was inexplicable. You also saw at the end of the game between Washington and the Giants. And I get that Ron Rivera was aggressive there and trying to go for the win there when he got the touchdown late and he was going for two to get the victory. Now remember, the Giants hadn't won a game all year until that foiled two-point attempt to where the Giants got their first win for Joe Judge. And when you couple that with Atlanta's win in Minnesota, which was terrible for the Vikings as well, You have the Jets as the only team in the league that has not had a win under their belt. 
I talked about Belichick's decision to go for two there up in Foxborough, which led them to a loss, as I talked about a few minutes ago. Chicago's 5-1 and one with a big win in Carolina. So Nick Foles doing just enough, managing the game the way Nick Foles always does. Sometimes he'll surprise you with a few big pass plays. Sometimes he'll go over the top. But the Bears, 5-1, and one, I think they're a paper tiger. But we'll see when the schedule really starts to unfold, when they go up and play against the Green Bay Packers in particular, when they play some of the other teams in their conference. They're playing the AFC South. So other than maybe the Tennessee Titans, who they'll face at some point down this road, the Bears, I'm looking to see how they're going to perform and if they're going to be a team to be reckoned with or, like I said, they're just going to be a paper tiger. Baltimore had a little bit of a scare late there in Philadelphia where the Eagles were down 17-0 at the half and 24-6 at one point. And they actually had a chance to tie the game late with a two-point conversion that they needed at 30-28, to but that fell short. They tried to do an RPO, but the Ravens smothered that. And the Eagles, their season just continues to spiral out of control. And the Ravens were able to sweat that one out, get on the bus and down the turnpike back to Baltimore. 30-28, to 28, Lamar Jackson, solid game. Did have over 100 yards rushing, had a 40-some-odd yard touchdown run, but uh, wasn't great there in the pocket. But they were able to escape there with a victory down in the city of brotherly love. Green Bay, I mean, what would you say? I understand Tampa was more of a winner. I can't put Green Bay as a loser. The one thing that Aaron Rodgers said that this loss was probably good for them, that they were able to get it out of the way, and now they could look ahead to some matchups there where they go down to Houston next week to play the Texans. So right now on paper, you would think that's a game that they should easily win. But Aaron Rodgers looked at that game more as a positive than a negative, even though they got blown out and their doors blown off in Tampa. I'm not going to talk about Detroit and Jacksonville. Nothing much to discuss there. I talked about Atlanta getting their first win. It was interesting because they were up 20 to nothing against Minnesota at one point. I thought to myself, oh geez, I think the Vikings probably have the Falcons right where they want them, but remember, Raheem Morris, who was promoted as coach, and they get their first win down there in Atlanta to see if they could turn the tables. Matt Ryan actually had a very good game, and he's put up some big numbers this year, but Ryan, as we've seen time and time again, it doesn't seem like he's able to bail this team out when they absolutely needed him, and yesterday they cruised to a 40-23 victory. I know the Bengals, they had a 21-0 lead, and they squandered that. They lose 31-27. That was a tough loss if you're a Bengal fan to my guy, Jai Shields down in Baltimore. I know he was beyond aggravated. I had to kind of pull him off the ledge there through social media. But hopefully the Bengals, they're in the right direction. That's a young team, young coach, young everything across the board. They have some veterans there, but you figure those veterans aren't going to be long for that team, whether you're A.J. Green or some of the other players that have been there for a long time. So when you... Look at the prognosis of the Bengals. At least they're competitive. They're not getting blown out in these games. They're not non-competitive. So you got to give it up for what they're doing. It's going to be a long year. And they may surprise you with a win or two. They have the Browns coming into their building this week. So maybe a little payback for that week two loss in Cleveland there on a Thursday night. And then to close out the Sunday slate, the Steelers took the Browns to the back of the woodshed and just had their way with them to the tune of a 38-7 victory. Funny enough, because when you look at the stats on this game, they were pretty much even. Ben Roethlisberger had a very slow start to this game, made the plays when he needed to, but the stat line at the end of the day was nothing 
that Ben Roethlisberger has put up over the years. He was, what, 13 for 21, had 167 yards, had a touchdown pass, didn't turn the ball over, but didn't really have his fingerprints on this game. This was more James Conner. Chase Claypool, who was the star of the Steelers last week against the Eagles, made a contribution on the offensive side as well. You had the big stops there for the Steelers, whether your name is Minka Fitzpatrick, Bud Dupree. The defense was enormous and really showed a complete effort by this team, which was much needed because now they have a tough task ahead of them. They have to go to Tennessee, follow that up to Baltimore, and then one last road game to Dallas. Now people say, ah, Jay Reels, Dallas. That's not going to be an easy game, especially when you're coming off the heels of a Tennessee team that's 5-0 and and then a Baltimore team that's right now 5-1 and and nipping at your heels. So the Steelers, who finally got a victory against a team with a record over 500, but there are two things that you got to worry about here for the Steeler team moving forward. One, they lose their defensive quarterback, Devin Bush, and that is not a huge loss. That is an enormous loss. When you think back to that 2017 season when Ryan Shazier went out with the spinal injury in Cincinnati on that Monday night game, that defense wasn't the same. And pretty much, Devin Bush is the replacement for one Ryan Shazier. And he had played every defensive snap in his year and now five games into his career prior to that injury. And it was an injury where it was innocent. You just saw him go over to the sideline after a play and he's just hunched over and you won the first thing, oh, geez, was it his knee? Was it, is it a cramp? Whatever. And then you just kind of felt that it wasn't going to be good. And it was ominous to think that this kid who, I don't want to say he's the heart and soul of this defense just yet, but because he is the quarterback of that defense, knowing that he makes all the signal calls, the play calls on that field, he's the general when it comes to that linebacking core in that defense. For him to be out and have Robert Spillane, who did play pretty well in his absence, Those are going to be some big shoes to fill. And then the other thing I got to look at here is the schedule. Because the Steelers started four of their first five games at home. And we understand the situation with Tennessee and their COVID cases. That had to be pushed back to now this coming week. But with the four games in a row at home and now the next three on the road. With the likes of Tennessee, Baltimore, and Dallas. This is probably going to be their toughest stretch. And let's see what they do here over the course of these three games. You want them to go 2-1? and one? To me, in a perfect world, I'd rather them win the front two and then lose to Dallas. And I understand that's going to upset all the Steeler fans. Oh, we hate Dallas. Forget about the Cowboys. I'm so tired of that narrative about rooting against the Cowboys. And I understand they're easy to root against because of the star, America's team, Jerry Jones. I get that. But any Steeler fan with a right frame of mind I understand you want to win all three, but you're not going to win three straight road games. But you would want those first two games because those are against not only a division rival, but a rival in your conference, which chances are could be quite possibly for seeding when it comes to the playoffs and maybe even a one seed. I understand it's a little bit of a stretch right now. We still have a whole season to play. Kansas City, although they lost and they got to go play Buffalo later on and the Steelers do play Buffalo later on this year. So... As of right now, we can't even look at the big crystal ball to think that this is for the top seed or top two seeds, but we can dream, and as of right now, we can look ahead that that's going to be pivotal when it comes to tiebreakers later on. I mean, there's no question about that. 
So if you want to beat Dallas and then split the other two games, then you need to re-examine your priorities when it comes to the team you root for. Because if you beat Tennessee and Baltimore, you're going to be riding high going into that Dallas game. And I can see there'd be a letdown, but be that as it may, the point of the matter is, is that this is going to be an enormous stretch for this team at this juncture of the year. And then with a quarterback who has played well overall, but has gotten off to slow starts in each one of these games. He has not gotten his rhythm. Yesterday was arguably his worst game, especially when it comes to a stat line. We know at the end of the day, it's all about wins. And that's all that matters is Coach Mike Tomlin loves to say, we're not trying to get any style points here. But in these upcoming weeks, Roethlisberger is going to have to be at his very best. And that's just one thing to monitor early on. You're going up against a team that mirrors you when it comes to playing physical, playing hard, playing fast. Same for Baltimore. So we're going to expect some two physical games here. And I'm sure a lot of trips to the Whirlpool over the course of these couple of weeks. And it's going to be fascinating to say the least how the Steelers are going to perform here. And really it's going to go a long way to how their season may be dictated by these two upcoming games. And to take a look ahead to week seven, I know that's the highlight one o'clock game, Pittsburgh at Tennessee by far. And mind you, Baltimore has a bye this week. So just keep that in mind too. Your buys this week are Indianapolis, Miami, Minnesota, and Baltimore. Your games this week, your Thursday night game. If you plan on going to bed early, I suggest you do Giants at Eagles. Case closed. Other than that, your key one o'clock game, Pittsburgh at Tennessee. Other than that, your 1 o'clock slate is just terrible. Detroit at Atlanta. Cleveland at Cincinnati. Carolina at New Orleans. Yeah. Buffalo at the Jets. Dallas at Washington. Green Bay at Houston. And you have some good 4 o'clock games. I know the San Francisco-New England game is your highlight game. But let's face it. New England is a shell of its old self. And San Francisco, although with their big win yesterday, you're not going to know what to expect. I get you got the Jimmy G going back to New England storyline there, but is that really a storyline? You know, Jimmy G had some success there, but only played in a handful of games. You know, it's not as if Tom Brady's going back to New England in his first time, so let's not make it out to be that. You have Seattle at Arizona. That's a very good game. Kansas City at Denver, the mile-high altitude. That's not a great game either, if you ask me. I understand Denver winning New England, but am I going to get crazy over that game? No. Jacksonville at the LA Chargers. Your Sunday night game is Tampa at the Las Vegas Raiders. Eh, not bad. And then your Monday night game is Chicago at the Rams. And although 5-1 and one against 4-2, and two, but let me see Chicago pull out a victory here. And I'm not trying to say the Rams are world beaters, although they are a very good team. But let's see how Nick Foles does against that Ram defense, especially with the Rams coming off of a loss. And before I transition over to college football, another sad passing to report in the NFL. Fred Dean, the longtime Niner, drafted by the San Diego Chargers, Hall of Famer, great pass rusher of those early 80s and mid-80s San Francisco 49er teams, died at the age of 68, was a standout at Louisiana Tech, second round pick by the Chargers, was traded 1980 to the San Francisco 49ers, and again, number 74, Fred Dean was a beast of a defensive lineman, always getting after the quarterback. Thoughts, prayers, condolences, et cetera, et cetera, go out to another fallen 
legend there in the Bay Area to a one Fred Dean. May he rest in peace. Now, as far as college football is concerned, you finally had a game that you could look at and circle to say the college football season has arrived. I know last week we could say that. We talked about a lot of college football on last week's podcast. But here, when you have Georgia against Alabama, you could really look at this and say, all right, now we could dissect. Now we could get into a college football season that, to me, has been non-existent. I can't get into some of these other conferences that are playing. I understand the SEC is and the ACC have been off and running, but we haven't had the sexy matchup just yet. And you would have had another with LSU in Florida. And as a matter of fact, let me start there. Now the Gators, they are rescheduling that game against LSU, I believe until the week before the conference championship, which I believe is December 19th off the top of my head. But with everything that led up to that, I know Coach Dan Mullen, who was hoping to get 90000 in the swamp for this game against LSU and then had to backtrack on what he said in light of everything that's happening in this country with the coronavirus. And then as he tempting fate and sadly him coming down with the virus, it really put things in perspective how as much as you want to talk about, yeah, let's pack up the building. Yeah, SEC football is back. Let's get all our supporters. Let's... Stomp on those LSU Tigers. And then what happened, obviously, comes down with the COVID. So that game is being postponed. That would have been another game that we certainly could have wrapped our arms around. But with the Bama and Georgia game, it looked like Georgia, for at least a half, put themselves in position to have a very good second half, to get down to the wire, to upset the Crimson Tide at Alabama. And we all know early in the week, the news with Nick Saban and his AD coming down with the coronavirus as well. But because he had those three negative tests, he was able to fly in by helicopter to partake and be on the sideline for his team. But it's the same movie that we've seen time after time after time after time when it comes to the Crimson Tide against Georgia They just blitzed them in the second half, dominated. What looked like a 24-17 lead at the half, Bama kicks a field goal as time expired. 24-20, that was enough juice to get them into a second half to where they just steamrolled them defensively. Georgia wasn't able to put up a point. Their quarterback was just inefficient in a one Stetson Bennett. This was their second half possessions. Punt, punt, interception, interception, missed field goal. You're going to do that against any team. You're not going to come out victorious. And when you have huge games from Mac Jones, who threw for 417 yards, four touchdowns, huge game from Najee Harris on the ground with 150 yards plus, and your receiving tandem of Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell, who each had 160 plus receiving yards, that is a recipe for disaster if you're a Georgia Bulldog. 41-24 going away. Was there any doubt? Not at all. Bama continues to be at the top of the polls, or at least right behind Clemson, who just destroyed Georgia Tech 73-7. No ifs, ands, buts about it. But if you're Georgia and an alumni, a fan of the Bulldogs, again, you just shake your head. You just wonder when are we ever going to get over the hump against this team. We've seen it time and time again on big stages, huge spots. 
national championship games, conference championship games, leads, small, big, it doesn't matter. Alabama always seems to have their number and it was proven again there Saturday night as Alabama steamrolled to a dominant second half and a 41-24 victory. Now, as for the other teams there that are jockeying for position in that top five for college football, you had Notre Dame where Louisville went into your building and played very competitive. It was a baseball score to say the least 12 to seven. But if you're Notre Dame, you come out wiping your brow and just saying, man, that was a close one. Louisville fought hard, played competitively, but Notre Dame did just enough in order for them to win a game and keep themselves in the mix there for the top four for the college football playoff. Then to Carolina, you have to be embarrassed by the way you performed going to Tallahassee down 24 nothing before you know it and 31-7 that you had to come all the way back but fall short in a 31-28 loss and you could kiss whatever hopes that they had goodbye. Now with Georgia losing... Notre Dame will go up a tick in the polls. You figure they'll be third behind Alabama and Clemson. They're your one and two. Georgia will probably go down to four, maybe even five, because Ohio State and the Big Ten will come into the mix this weekend. So with North Carolina and Georgia probably going at five and six, you'll have Ohio State there probably at four, and Ohio State will usher this season against Nebraska there on Saturday, as well as Penn State. Penn State ranked in the top 10 to kick off this college football season. Also, Michigan and Minnesota, that's going to be a very fascinating matchup, the 12 against the 16. So we'll have them enter the college football season, and then a couple weeks after that, we'll have the Pac-12 make their appearance to enter the 2020 college football season. And all we could say right now is we'll see where these other teams, especially in the Big Ten, fall into play. I understand that even Ohio State ranked number four with no record. It's weird. It's strange. But with all the preseason polls, you know they're going to be up there. They're going to be ranked high. They're going to be in that class. Maybe a rung below since we haven't seen them. Because to me, it's Clemson, Alabama, and everybody else. Notre Dame, they're not in that class of those two teams. Even Georgia, as good as they've been over the last couple of years, we've seen time and time again, Can they play against a team like Clemson? They probably can, but they'll probably face the same result if they were to play them in a playoff situation. So now we have to wait and see what Ohio State does. We have to see Penn State. We'll have to even look at Michigan to see what Jim Harbaugh could do. Those are going to be the teams that we're going to look at and focus on before we even talk about the Pac-12 and see where they're going to rank and see where they'll fall here over the course of the next few weeks to get themselves positioned and ready for a possible postseason run on New Year's Eve where we'll have the playoff. And that's only two and a half months away. So it'll be here before you know it. Now the rest of the college football schedule for this weekend, nothing really to shake a stick at, nothing really to get amped up or crazy about. I mentioned those few games there with the Big Ten. I mean, you have Alabama going to Tennessee. Not a big deal there, especially with Tennessee losing to Kentucky for the first time in forever. Goes to show you how far Tennessee has fallen off. But you don't really have a lot of sexy matchups. You don't really have a lot of big games with some of the other teams, you know, the Clemsons and Pittsburgh playing in Miami. Right, so I'm not going to get into some of those other games with the top-ranked teams in the country. We'll just wait to see after the first week of the Big Ten 
what does that mean for the top 10, especially the top five, when we look at the playoff as a whole. So we'll get into all that on the next podcast with the Big Ten and everything else that's happening in college football. Now, a few quick notes here from three different sports, and I'll start with the NBA. Tyron Lue is your coach of the Clippers. Five-year deal. You wonder if this was something that Steve Ballmer, the owner, had in mind, knowing that he probably wanted to keep it in-house. He knows Lou's background, won a title in Cleveland in 2016, as we all know, has been a lifer in his post-career as a coach, whether it was with Boston and Doc Rivers in the late 2000s, especially on that championship team in 2008. Obviously, these years with the Clippers and the Doc Rivers sandwiched in between those years in Cleveland. I would think that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are on board with this. Now let's see what they do to tweak the roster to get themselves in position to make a run of the title because that's what it's all about. And we don't know if Kawhi, Paul George, after this upcoming year, will be willing to say goodbye, to opt out, and move on to greener pastures if this year doesn't happen to be the year that they were hoping for this past season, this upcoming season. So we'll see how that shakes down. You also had Daryl Morey stepping down as the Rocket GM after 14 years. Him being a big part of that organization. Had a big one-page ad to thank the city of Houston, thank the team, even James Harden, how much of a big part he was, not only in his professional life, but his personal life as well. And that was a team, as we all know, they may be remembered for their stretches against the Warriors and coming that close to making it to a final, but to me, the Rockets are an afterthought. I understand they may have been close. They probably should have gone to a final the one year when they were up three games to two where Chris Paul was hurting, but it didn't work out that way. So, But uh, let's see what Daryl Morey does in his next step in his basketball life or if he goes somewhere else. Remains to be seen. And we'll be interested to see what the Pelicans are going to do for their head coaching job. Rumored that Stan Van Gundy would, is a guy that could possibly go there. I don't know if you're New Orleans... And I got nothing against Stan Van Gundy, but he's bounced around everywhere. We all know the heat back in the mid-2000s, Orlando Magic, Detroit Pistons. Uh, Do you really want to go with a retread like Stan Van Gundy? I know if you're New Orleans, you want to try to get a guy who has a bit of a background, has a bit of a resume, and Van Gundy has that, but he hasn't won. I would think if you're... Gail Benson, the owner and the powers that be of the Pelicans, you want to bring in a guy that has a championship pedigree. And we understand that those guys don't grow on trees. They're not all out there. But but I get that. Even if you want to bring in a guy that maybe won as a player and didn't as a coach, if you want to bring in a guy like Jason Kidd, and I'm just throwing his name out there, not that his name is being floated or being reported as the coach of the Pelicans, but whether you want to do that, or to get a guy that has a background or has that resume that either has won a championship or been to a championship with your name, let's say David Blatt could be a guy. And I understand he's part of that retread type of coach. But if you're the Pelicans, I would think with this young core, you may want to get a younger guy that's going to build and be with this team to reach them to heights that they haven't seen and to develop and to get them to a point where they can compete for a title let's say three, four years down the road. If I'm the owner of the Pelicans, that's where I'm going. 
I'm not even thinking about the Stan Van Gundys of the world or a guy like that. If you want to pluck an assistant off of another team that has a championship pedigree, please feel free. I think that would be suffice as well. But I would think if you're going to bring in a name, you want to bring in someone that does have some sort of experience, whether it's on the floor or coach the team to a title or even coach the team to an NBA final. I think that will go a long way to bring this young Pelican team not only for next year, but for the years ahead. Because with this nucleus, with Zion, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, etc., they have a chance to do something special. It's going to take a few years, but you get the right coach in there. They could certainly do some damage in a Western Conference where you think LeBron's going to leave at some point. At some point. Who knows when? I don't know. Remains to be seen. A Warrior team that you think will be competitive. Houston right now is up in the air. We understand a young team in Denver or even an up-and-coming team in Utah, but you could throw New Orleans in that mix if they do get the right person in there. So that definitely remains to be seen. And then you have an NBA draft that's on November the 18th, but when is free agency? I guess it's a few days after that. But I was looking at it up considering that the NHL is already 10 days or so into free agency. It made me think, all right, when is the NBA going into it? And I couldn't find a date, even on their website. I did see that the 18th is the draft, but, and that's still a month away. You would think the draft would be sometime after Halloween, considering that you still want to get the, you don't want to get the NBA out of your system just yet if you're a diehard basketball fan or if you're wondering, hey, when is the draft? So yeah, I just found that a little bit weird that they've waited more than a month after the NBA Finals to hold their draft where you would think, usually in a regular year, it's just a week or so right after the final game of the NBA season. So we'll keep our eye on that as we move along. And speaking of the NHL, you had two big signings. One with a former St. Louis Blue captain, Alex Pietrangelo, and he was a guy that I wondered where he was going to sign considering he had an impasse or a fallout with the St. Louis Blues and where his next destination was going to be. Well, it's going to be in Vegas as he signed a seven-year deal with the Golden Knights. So that's only going to bolster their team. A lot of experience, cup experience, a team that as we've seen in these three years of existence, go to a cup final in their first year and go to a conference final this year. So who knows? Maybe he could be that final piece to the puzzle. Also to couple that with the signing of Robin Leonard, the goalie, five years for $35 million. Now they got to see if they could trade Marc-Andre Fleury, their original starter, to another team and bring back an asset or two, another veteran piece possibly to get themselves to win a Stanley Cup. So kudos to them. And then Joe Thornton, He's a guy that's been in the league 23 years. And you would think, out of all these sports, I believe Vince Carter was tied with Joe Thornton as far as longest tenure on a team in any sport, or longest tenure in the sport, because as we know, both Thornton has bounced around from Boston to San Jose, and then Carter, of course, has played on a million teams. But as far as being in the league for as long as they have, Carter just retired after this past year, 22 years, and now that Thornton, who's now signed a deal with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and for him to go on 23 years, and we know Toronto is starving for a Stanley Cup winner. They haven't won in 53 years. You wonder whether or not, not to say he's going to be the final piece, but he's a veteran piece to go along with a lot of guys on that team, the John Tavares of the world, the Austin Matthews, 
etc. Go down down the list. And Thornton is a guy that, let's face it, he's 41 years old. You can't expect much out of him at this stage of his career, but you know that he's going to bring a lot of experience. He's going to bring a lot of his, his hockey IQ, a lot of grit, a lot of determination, everything that he has experienced over his career. I believe that's why they signed him, because other than that, he's not going to come in there and save the day or take them to the Holy Grail. But I just find it fascinating because he's a guy 23 years in the sport and hockey, no less. And we understand football's tough and Tom Brady's been doing it now for 20 plus years and NBA, I know the rigors of travel and you look at a guy like Vince Carter doesn't have the same lift, the legs, etc. But hockey is just that much more difficult and for him to be able to not have to go off into the sunset. And even Patrick Marlowe is another guy who just resigned and he's 41 years old. But Thornton is a guy who was a number one pick overall, like a guy that everybody knows when you see his face, the long beard, etc. And let's see what that sojourn in Toronto will come out of it once the season begins sometime after the new year. In fact, I believe it is January 1st, as we talked about on last week's podcast. And then finally, there was a fight over the weekend, which I didn't really pay much attention to. If everybody knows and has heard me speak on the podcast in the past, I used to love boxing. Boxing was that event on a Saturday night, pay-per-view, get together with the buddies and you watch and you just talk about the fight, the controversies, the upsets, the clear-cut decisions, etc. But you had a fight there Saturday night where you had a 23-year-old Teofimo Lopez go up against Vasily Lomachenko. And I know the name Lomachenko. I've never seen him fight. I'll be 100% transparent and honest with you guys. But the reason why I bring it up is because Lopez became the youngest fighter to be a four-belt champion at his tender age, like I mentioned, 23. Lopez started off strong. Then Lomachenko made his move in the later rounds in the post-fight. Lomachenko even came out and said he thought he won the fight, which a lot of boxers do, and they're going to say they're never going to admit to losing a fight even if they got knocked down 16 times and were bloodied all over the place. But give credit to Lopez for coming out there and being that young champion. He actually was decisive in all of the cards from the judges. I believe they were 119, 119-109, 118-111, 116-112. I believe that were the scores from the judges. So despite Lomachenko thinking that he should have won the fight, that's uh, the judges must have saw something else. And Lopez is now your lightweight winner. What that means moving forward for him, what that means as far as upcoming fights. Again, I am not in tune or in touch with the boxing world like I once was. I couldn't even tell you who the next up-and-coming flyweight was if my life depended on it. And I'm just being honest. I'll pay more attention to Lopez, especially after his exploits there Saturday night, knowing that he is a four-belt champion, knowing that he is a guy that you'll have to keep an eye on. But if it wasn't because of him winning those four belts, it just would have been a normal fight and nobody probably would have even cared. But knowing that this kid just did something special, you have to report it. And who knows where it could lead to. So congratulations to him. And hopefully it leads to a long career. And hopefully a very robust career. Because I I couldn't even tell you what other lightweight out there could contend for those four belts that he just secured there on Saturday night. So that's what we got there with boxing. Now let's get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is one of my favorite all-time announcers. Mike Doc Emmerich, the longtime NHL announcer, NHL on NBC, former New Jersey Devils announcer, also for the Philadelphia Flyers. He's been around forever, 50 plus years in the game. 
I've said it time and time again. If there's one sport that I would love to watch for any announcer in any sport, I love Mike Breen. Love Al Michaels. I love my guys, Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling. I get that. But to me, the guy who brings the passion, the guy who articulates the play on the ice so well and does it as eloquent as possible, for him to go off into the sunset for his career and call it quits, he's already in the Hockey Hall of Fame in the broadcaster's wing. Nothing but kudos, nothing but congratulations to him. Mike Emmerich, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, and I hate to pick on this team, but I got no choice because they just do it to themselves, is Jets defensive coordinator Greg Williams for throwing his offense under the bus last week to where coach Adam Gaze wasn't happy about it. And I'm not apologizing for Adam Gaze by any stretch, but for him to come out, Williams, to say that this is all on the offense, why don't you go talk to them about it, look at what they're doing, we're doing our best, blah, blah, blah. Just shows you the ineptitude of this organization, this franchise, etc. But for Williams, I don't know. Maybe he's trying to get Gase fired so he could get the job. I don't know. But for him to just do that and just rat out his head coach. And we all know from the beginning, even going back to last year before these two convened, there were reports about them not really getting along uh, throughout the course of their careers and made you question whether or not they could get along here. Well, here we are at this juncture of their second seasons here as the New York Jet defensive coordinator and the head coach. It is certainly falling fast, quick, and in a hurry. And for Greg Williams to call out the offense and the coach and all that, to me, he is my zero of the week. And that will conclude episode 160 here of the J Reels podcast, bringing you everything that's happening in the world of sports. I greatly appreciate you guys, one and all, for taking the opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say my analysis, my opinions to entertain and inform you on everything that's happening in this universe. If you haven't done so already, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music, you name it. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast so where I could generate interest for those outside who aren't familiar with the J Reels podcast and myself to bring in that guest, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the blogger, the writer, studio host, whomever it may be. With your participation in doing that, people, I would greatly appreciate it. Again, there are plenty of podcasts out there, as we all know. So the more visibility it gets by you subscribing, rating, and reviewing, if you could do that, it will be a tremendous help for me and for what it is that I'm trying to build here. If you need to get in contact with me or want to reach out with a question, comment, criticism, praise, you can hit me up in my DMs on any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at J Reels or the J Reels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports. On Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. And if you want to send an email the old-fashioned way, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Lastly, if you want to support my work and everything I do behind the scenes, whether it's the production, the website, equipment, etc., you could do so at www.patreon. That's P as in Peter, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Anything that you'd love to contribute. I'm hoping to build this platform or this side of the platform as well because in due time, I want to have exclusive content just for people who sign up to my Patreon account who contribute to what it is that I'm doing here because this is my passion, people. Since birth, 
I've loved sports since day one. That's all I could do is talk about it. I'll wake up in the middle of the night to turn on the microphone to talk about anything that goes on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.